this idea of overcapitalization or, or capitalism around psychedelics. And this gets mm. really nuanced, mm -hmm. obviously. I'm not an anti-capitalist, I don't think, but I do see an issue with people trying to commodify and patent and extract value from these sacred or powerful substances at mm -hmm. the expense of access to other people. And what really grinds my gears is when people <laughs> pivot into the space with no background. And a lot of times they'll admit this. They'll be like, oh, I just had psychedelics for the first time in 2019 or 2020, and now I'm trying to write the laws around who gets access <laughs> to them. That's such low-hanging fruit for satire. Yeah, of course. Well, obviously, you know best if you just did it. We talk about this all the time on the podcast. So people just like, yeah, they take psychedelics and then they immediately want to become a shaman. Obviously, that's the right choice, 100%. I'm satire. Yeah. Sophie even told us a story about someone she met at uh, one of the conferences. I can't remember which one who had, it was a couple that had just tried mushrooms and they were opening up a retreat in Jamaica that year. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of it. Yeah. There's a lot of it. And again, I don't want to go after the people necessarily. Sometimes yeah. it's warranted, but this archetype, like creating a character. And so oftentimes I will play both characters in a skit because yeah, it's like, it's taking a very real world example and then framing it in a ridiculous, accessible, and very relatable sort of one or two minute clip yeah. that hopefully people can see that and be like, that is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, cause we've become accommodated, we've become customized or um, acclimated to normalizing absurd things, I think, in this culture right now in a lot of ways. And one example of that I heard, which I like too, is that there's some tradition or saying that a lot of stupid things in society get that way because not enough people mocked them. <laughs> if we had people mocking them, we would be able to see that it's an, it's absurd that someone who just tapped into psychedelics is going to now be responsible for stewarding over macrodoses for other people. Mm. Like, I think that's pretty absurd personally. So we have to frame it in an absurd context to make it seem logical that this is a bad idea. You're listening to the Tripsitter Podcast, where we demystify substances, break down the science behind them, and discuss the crazy world of psychedelic culture. Like having a Tripsitter watch over your experience, our goal is to provide guidance and support in preparation for your psychedelic journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the trip. I'm Justin. I'm the founder, editor-in-chief of Tripsitter. I'm Rowan. I'm a contributor for Tripsitter. And I'm James. I'm also a contributor for Tripsitter. And joining us today is Dennis Walker. He's the host of the Micropreneur podcast, where he speaks with influential figures in the psychedelic renaissance and decriminalization movement. He has recently gained popularity for his satirical videos, which poke fun at the movement and has earned the title of the court jester of the psychedelic renaissance, making fun of the royalty and yet accepted by many of them. He's here to talk with us today about his mission behind the laughter, discovering his unique role in the space and the power of comedy. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm lovely. Que possible fossa, everybody. What's <laughs> up? And shout out to the audience all over the world. And for everyone listening, you can't see. Obviously, he does have a jester hat with the little bells on 100%. <laughs> yes. Got the whole get up. <laughs> Uh, t tell us about that role, Dennis. I, I At first when I heard it, I thought it was kind of like a one-off thing, but then I feel like I heard it in like three or four different podcasts that I heard you in or, or have heard people refer to you as that. What, what do you think that role is? What do you think your role is within the psychedelic space? And can you 
expand on why that gesture is so important? Yeah. So historically, the jester, the trickster, which are potentially different archetypes, but have a lot of overlap, have been omnipresent in different societies across human history, be it in North America and native indigenous cultures with the coyote showing up in different morality tales and the Hayoka character, or in the actual Renaissance in Europe, you had the court jester, who's the only one who's allowed to criticize the king without being beheaded. And a lot of this I kind of learned about after the fact, after people started designating me as the court jester of the psychedelic Renaissance. And the role of the jester historically essentially is to keep power structures and ego in check. And there's been so many, so many examples of this, including in Africa and different cultures where there's ritualistic mocking of power structures. And I think that's the value of it. And I think that's also why the royalty themselves notice that is because if you're in a position of power, how dare anybody criticize you? But actually that can be really healthy to the powerful themselves, not to get in their own way. So I think that it's multifaceted and I discovered it accidentally on purpose, as I say. I did the podcast that I still do for over a year interviewing a lot of corporate executives, CEOs of publicly traded companies, so on and so forth in the emerging psychedelic space, which I've been a devotee of for many years before the public spotlight arrived here. And then about a year in, I made a satire video poking fun at these foreign-owned retreat centers around the world of like this, you know, the, the white owned European, North American owned centers in Iquitos, Peru and in Tulum, so on and so forth. And that really resonated with a lot of people. And I doubled down on it after that. So that's the short answer of how I came to the position I'm in now. That that answers, I guess, kind of the next question a little bit. But the next thing I wanted to ask about that was, you know, do you feel like your your messaging has changed along with the time that you've been doing this? Because you've been doing the Micropreneur podcast for a few years now, right? How long has it been going? Yeah, it's coming up on three years in January. And I think that I view it as an ever-evolving, open-ended discourse. Mm. And it's why I love doing podcasts. I love to have my perspectives meaningfully challenged and hopefully vice versa with people. And I think that we really need long-form, nuanced dialogue and diplomacy in the world at large right now. We're entering an election year in the US, as many people are familiar with, and the status quo seems to be about polarity, about polar opposites politically, different ends of the spectrum. And I'm interested in exploring nuance and dialogue. Mm. And I think that comes into the psychedelic space when we look at the different models and access points. You've got clinical studies and medicalized psychedelics and the VA funding psychedelics. Then you have the decrim crowd a lot of the times who are more focused on personal use and possession and community values. And we've seen a lot of jarring controversy from all kinds of different angles, both within the academic community themselves to what we might call the roots and the suits, the <laughs> underground versus the corporates. <laughs> and I find that the more we bang heads against each other, the less amelioration or reconciliation happens. So that's why I think I continue to try to do content on a daily basis and podcasts on a weekly basis to present a more nuanced form of dialogue and debate. James was saying you had like a comic or something coming out. Is that right? Yeah, I'm always working on something or the other. And okay. 
a comic in particular would be great, but I've been doing stuff with puppets. I think puppets mm. are very fun. You know, it's very disarming. Like, have you ever been angry at a puppet? No. So they're like the perfect little mouthpiece, like Team America, right? Or, or one of these the popular, like the Muppets is another great example. Like you can inject a lot of valid social commentary into these kind of childlike uh, set and settings. So I think puppets... Uh, and I've noticed a few other organizations and psychedelics coming out with that. Like the Psychedelic Assembly in New York City mm-hmm. has just started. They just made a Terrence McKenna puppet. Yeah. It's like, why are there not? Why is there not a Paul Stamets puppet out there? You know, why is there not uh, a Rick? Do- Actually, I have a Rick Doblin puppet that Maps gave me customized. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I'd like to see more of the whimsical, fun, educational element of psychedelics because I think. We've got a lot of the very sober, serious, clinical debate going on right now. So let's make it fun. Both mm. are important, right? I think so. I think Alan Alan Watts talks about this a lot too, as like the jester, as like the anchoring of of reality. You know, it's kind of like to help us find the middle way. We go extreme, and the and the the prankster, the joker, brings us back by kind of pointing out how equally, in some ways, ridiculous or wrong it is on either way you look at it. The truth is always somewhere a lot more complicated in the middle. Totally. Do you have a, a background in comedy or in puppetry or in any of these things? Or are you like kind of learning them emergently as you go along? So I was a touring puppeteer in a church youth group for a couple years, seventh grade and eighth grade. So I would say that's my basis for puppetry. And I've heard Danny McBride, who I'm a big fan of, who does Eastbound and Down, Righteous Gemstones and a bunch of movies, mm-hmm. talk about this, that his mom did puppet shows in church growing up. And they're really just morality tales is this idea of like a little short three to five minute skit that tries to make some point about how we might orient our culture. And I think that's what a lot of the role of the trickster does like historically that like, again, going back to the Hayoka or the Native American coyote trickster tales is like they show up to sort of help frame community ethos and values. And I think that's very valuable right now with psychedelics because because we don't really have community values necessarily. We have like a lot of different sort of stakeholders all trying to negotiate and be diplomatic and, and uh, you know, assert their viewpoint as we mainstream psychedelics. So that was the basis as being in a church puppet group. And then I won class clown in high school, but there was no <laughs> sort of formal approach there. It was just, I think I've used humor as a coping mechanism mm-hmm. for being a fringe character. You know, it's a lot of self-deprecating humor mm-hmm. and like being mm-hmm. on the fringe of the popular crowd or whatever. Like I was accepted, but I was never the center of attention. Mm-hmm. I think humor was a way of, you know, I was that typecast as that character of, oh, he's the funny person in the cool crowd. So mm-hmm. that's another angle. And then I do have a academic and professional background in media. Mm-hmm. So that kind of set the basis for the podcast and journalism and multimedia and it wasn't until a couple years in, or at least a year into doing Micopreneur, that I realized I should be doubling down on this undertapped niche, which is psychedelic satire. And it's focusing on the emerging psychedelic movement with a satirical lens. And there's not been a ton of people doing it, but it fits really well together. And mm-hmm. it seems to, I think it, it is built for the long run because we live in an increasingly absurd timeline. A lot of people will validate that. <laughs> So like who better to unpack that and examine it than an absurdist satirical content creator and viewpoint. Yeah. You mentioned the psychedelic assembly, like Sarah Rose Siskind and Shane Moss are doing a lot of stuff out of there and they're doing a lot of stuff with comedians. Uh, 
comic psychedelic work. So I find that really interesting connection that you're making there. Yeah. They're awesome. I had a chance to connect with Shane in Miami recently, and he actually came out to the comedy show I did there. And I've been on a panel with Sarah Rose Siskin, so I'm familiar with them. And they're definitely setting the tone, I think, on a global standard for doing psychedelic comedy. And Adam Strauss, as you mentioned, and there's quite a few other up-and-coming worthy people doing it and doing it very well. And I would hope to eventually have some kind of infrastructure in place, be it like a sacred clown school or something <laughs> that can help people develop this viewpoint. Cause honestly, it's so healthy too. Cause there's just so much difficult, bad trying news coming out from all angles that like mm. you kind of have to develop a sense of humor if you're going to survive this upcoming whatever's coming because mm. it's it's pretty depressing so like if you can <laughs> develop a sense of humor i think it's a safeguard against a lot of the the challenges that are coming out absolutely quick question were you assemblies of god no, no, I was some non-denominational oh, Christian no church. But I've uh, only ever, I've only ever heard of the puppeteering at the assemblies of. I had a friend who was assemblies of God who did puppeteering when he was in high school too. <laughs> we're, we're all traumatized by the organized religion. <laughs> <laughs> we all have religious trauma. <laughs> so when you're developing your satirical pieces for comedy. How do you, because a lot of a big conversation, obviously in the comedy world right now, I come from a stand-up comedy background is like choosing your targets, punching up, making sure that when you're working in this comedic space that you're doing it so constructively and not to tear people down. What does your approach to that look like when you are, you're making your, your targets quote unquote about who you're going to joke about? I love this question so much, Rowan. And a big part of it, as you mentioned, is punching up, I think is so important punching up being that you're going after power structures and well-funded, well-respected people and groups. And that's different than like, if I want to try to criticize and pick apart, you know, a marginalized community or whatever, that doesn't really work. So, and there's no need for it, frankly. So I think punching up is huge. And then my friend, Adam from Healing from Healing, a great Instagram page, if people are familiar, he uses this phrase, which is, hard on systems, soft on people. And I try to do that where, okay, I'll make fun of Christian Angermeyer. Dude's a multi-billionaire, you know, biotech executive. Like I think he's fair game, mm -hmm. uh, but more so I'm interested in critiquing power structures and systems. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really interesting. You just mentioned like mocking archetypes and not mocking people, like bringing the archetypes in. It's a very like Jungian idea, but also you're talking about the trickster. You're talking about, uh, like the gesture, you're you're bringing in these really archetypical ideas and grounding them in reality. So that way you can have this fractal experience to use psychedelic language. I, I think that's a really, really powerful way of approaching it. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that it's, uh, it's really interesting because it's like you can attack a person and it'll only go so far, but there's like a system that allows that person to do the thing that you're attacking. There's an underlying reasoning behind like them getting away with it and like being able to do it and it's it's more important to maybe focus on that a lot of times but then like you said you know punching up like christian angermeyer you know like it like you said fair game <laughs> so i think that's really interesting choosing your targets um we've talked about some of them but what are some of the other things that you're calling out in your videos just to like turn the subtext into context a little what are some of your other kind of driving uh 
morals that you're you're trying to communicate. Don't join a cult unless you know what you're getting into. <laughs> I think that's a big one, I think, especially with retreat centers. And that's really what launched a lot of the satire is what was a top of mind skit lampooning these foreign owned retreat centers where there's a very self-important guru at the center of all mm. of it. And I think all of us can think of characters like this. And a lot of, you know, mainstream media has covered this. Like Vice did a documentary on this charlatan five meo dmt facilitator who had a center in mexico and was just chain smoking five meo dmt all day and like you know <laughs> passing it out to anyone and then people were having nervous breakdowns and he was telling them they need to just smoke more and then you know extracted the wealth from people from their bank accounts while they were under the influence and like there's plenty of examples of this and I think sometimes the people don't even know what they're doing. Like you're just so gone from mm -hmm. rampantly abusing and being narcissistic and so on and so forth that you might end up with a God complex. So that's mm -hmm. a really easy one to attack as well. And a number of people in the psychedelic space now, and myself included, have gone to a retreat center years ago in the Amazon that positioned itself as this really established safe retreat center. And then a few years later, it comes out that the head honcho there was raping people. And there was mm. no publicity about this. Nobody seemed to know it. And unfortunately, that seems to be something that happens in clandestine, mm -hmm. sort of off the radar places. And there's lots of examples. And again, I'm not interested in shaming or name dropping necessarily. If it was an imminent danger, I would say something. But that individual is deceased and has been for a decade. But it's like, these cult leaders, essentially, where psychedelics have a sense of being very attractive to vulnerable populations, because they can be marketed as this magic bullet. And they often are that like, you're sitting there in your home in New York or LA or whatever. And I'm here, and I've figured it out. And I'm happy and I'm healthy and yada, yada. So come to my program or retreat, and we're going to fix you. And I think that unfortunately, this messaging has caught on with a lot of people and it's it's endless there's been a lot of examples of that so and this is something that right now there are a few journalists covering it and it's increasingly come to light so that that's a big one is like cult dynamics self-important shamanic gurus who have the answer and you need to abide by their protocol another example is like there's retreat centers in jamaica that will give a discount to you if you book a second journey there while you're still at the first journey. So essentially you have people going through macrodose mushroom experiences, having this beautiful healing experience, and then they're being incentivized to return. And I question the dynamics of that. It's like, couldn't you like wait a little bit, you know, maybe after six weeks or two months before selling the retreat package again? That's a big mail one. Mail a flyer. Mm. Mail a flyer. No, but how are they going to get yeah. the correct effects if they don't immediately jump into the next trip? Come on. Obviously. It's true. It's true. And I mean, I've had, I think I had a lot of these corporate executives on the podcast and continue to where you start to get into it and you're like, they don't necessarily have much of a frame of reference for psychedelics in the real world. They can cite clinical studies. They can cite data. Uh, they've got money, they've got investors, and they've got a good marketing and PR team, which is how some of them ended up on the podcast. But I'd say that I think the real world component, how people actually use these, how they actually impact your life after the fact, is oftentimes overlooked when you talk about a more capitalist system for psychedelics, mm -hmm. which all of us are trying to find the sweet spot, or many of us are for that right now. And it's pretty clear that the uh, mainstreaming of psychedelics as they were rolled out in 2018, 1920, 
it's not what a lot of people were expecting it to be. A lot of the companies have lost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have gone to the underground for better or worse. And now we're sort of in a period in 2024 over the next few years where we're going to see more of a separation of the wheat from the chaff. Like mm. the hype, the hype bubble burst, you know, it's tough to come by funding right now. So if you're bootstrapping like a lot of us broke psychonauts have for years, <laughs> you're probably in a more advantageous position than the company that has $100 million to burn through over the next three years. You've you've been talking a lot about the the power of holding people accountable through comedy. I think something that's very interesting on the other side is like a court jester never brought down a king. A court jester never dismantled a system and like reimagined it. There, like you were saying, there are people doing legitimate harm to others, and like making fun of these people and kind of like taking the piss out of these people is very valuable and very important. But does it in any way defang them and make them seem? to like make them enable to keep doing this harm because, oh, they're just someone we can mock that isn't an actual threat. How do you balance that? Oh, I've had this question before and I like it a lot. I think that to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So like <laughs> if there's a Raytheon executive who's interested in MDMA for operability of active duty military and I mock him, it's not gonna go very far, but there's a lot of people on the fence one way or another who are trying to make up their minds about how they wanna show up. Mm. So I think that's the real value of it is like, okay, this is ridiculous to me what this person is doing, let's make them look ridiculous. And then I would hope somebody who's actively negotiating who they are, as you say, there's two wolves inside all, all of us, <laughs> right? Like you've got the, We'll just say the capitalists cutthroat, <laughs> cut down all the trees except for one and then sell shade to people, you know, wolf. And then the other wolf is saying like, let's collectivize this and make sure it's accessible and so on and so forth and, and uh, immediately beneficial and helpful for people. And it's a not-for-profit space. And I'd like to think that satire can help people navigate and reconcile between those two wolves and hopefully mm. come to a, a center ground, a compromise I think at the end of the day that there's going to have to be compromise and that too many people on one side or the other of this ideological divide, whatever it be, politically or with psychedelics, they're unwilling to give up any ground. But I think that the answers we're going to see moving forward, hopefully, are you give up a little ground on your side, they give up some ground, and then we build something a little bit more in the middle. And that's sort of where I'm at right now. But again, I'm always open to having my perspective challenge. You're sort of adding fidelity to the to the global opinion on psychedelics kind of like you know people get in they trying to contour, contour it a little yeah. bit i think people get in there and they look around and they don't know what to think they look if everyone else is just kind of following the same thing but then you've got like people like you out there and they're like well no that's ridiculous that's pretty ridiculous and you're like oh, i guess it is kind of and it kind of adds adds depth to the whole thing because mm -hmm. there is a lot of ridiculousness in on all sides of this yeah no i mean i'll say that when i first got into psychedelics i don't think I ever came across any content that like actually raised a legitimate concern um, at all about psychedelics. And so I do think that that, that is a really critical uh, role to play because there are a lot of people who the first thing that they do when they take a psychedelic is they want to find out everything that they can about it. And they start searching and finding all these videos. And, you know, now I would say even back then there weren't a whole lot of like vice articles that talked about the like clinical problems or anything like that. And so I think that that's, that's a really good point. That's super, super interesting. You, you mentioned that you uh, still have on some of those corporate executives that you're poking fun at occasionally. 
how do you handle those interviews? Are there uh, ways that you try to kind of hold them accountable within those interview processes as well? Yeah, one comes to mind very recently, and I feel that it's an instrument of diplomacy. So right now, especially when so many connections between different ideological camps are frayed and fraying and people are siloing off, I think it's in the best interest of everyone to try to have a more diplomatic conversation. So Mm. I kind of consider the podcast and the skits that I do to be separate entities. And a lot of times, like, a company or a person will look at some of the social media and like not understand how that connects to them coming on the podcast uh, because it's designed to be over the top. It's designed to be attention grabbing and so on and so mm-hmm. forth and very nuanced. But I do try to go into their wheelhouse and ask them questions, very pertinent questions about how their background and experience extends to psychedelics essentially. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times like they'll become their own worst enemy because I have a background working and studying in political sciences in a lot of ways and producing campaigns. So I can speak the language that some of them are dropping when they're talking Mm. about study design and data. But then what I also have is a robust experience of personal non-clinical psychedelic use going back almost two decades at this point. And I just noticed that's been a missing component from a lot of this medicalization mm. that's happening mm. as of course there are a lot of people like rick doblin was tripping balls back in the <laughs> 60s and 70s right and like has talked about that lots of amanda fielding but then there's also a lot of these more corporate figures who definitely have very by their own admissions very very little personal or practical experience and there's this idea that somehow that doesn't matter like oh just to you know to be a psychedelic scientist or a psychedelic business person you don't need personal experience but I'm an advocate of putting psychonauts on your board. I think that so mm. many psychode- psychedelic companies, if you just put like one token psychonaut on your board, <laughs> it would make it a better company. And I've actually been approached about that. And I don't know at what level that is. I haven't signed anything, but uh, <laughs> I just think there's value to it. I think there's this idea of like the tripper or the person who uses psychedelics outside of a clinical therapeutic context, their experience doesn't count. And I often feel that way at some of these more medical conferences or on X, on Twitter. Mm. Oh, it's a cesspool (laughs) of hubris of people. Mm. I know better than you and I know more than you. Now, of course, there's a lot of great clinicians and academics, and this is not a blanket statement, but I do think that there's a disproportional relationship between some of these larger companies that have gone bust or are plowing through tens of millions of dollars because they don't have a psychedelic ethos. They're trying to run a psychedelic company without really understanding the psychedelic experience. Not to say that I do, but I know what I don't know. And I know that if you gave me $100 million today to run a psychedelic biotech company, I'd probably waste the money. And I think a lot of the other people in that position are wasting the money. And then conversely, there's a bunch of bootstrappers and trippers who have built multi-decade brands, you know, like Earth and Fire Arrowhead as a great example, mm-hmm. building a world-class open source tool that's been around for years with bootstrap funding. And like, good luck getting rid of us is all I'm saying. And we're your competitors. Mm. So I, cause you also, uh, invest in psychedelic startups as well. Is that correct? I haven't ever invested a dollar in a startup or anything, but I have advised or created content and contract payments for various projects here and there. Do you have um, like some projects that you like are really proud of that you 
kind of want to plug and talk about a little bit, like some some projects you've taken on, businesses that you feel like are, you know, really important in the psychedelic space? I'm pretty pumped to have contributed two articles to High Times in October. Mm -hmm. So that was a really cool one. And that feels good because it's tier one media and it's a brand that's been around for 50 years. So it feels mm -hmm. like a very a validation of some of the journalism I've been doing. That comes to mind immediately. I did an article and video for a platform called Psychedelic Alpha a couple of years ago. And I'm very proud of that one because they're a very clinical psychedelic sector and investment mm. focused publication. And they asked me to satirize them. And I went <laughs> in and it was fun. They liked it. I felt that it was an opportunity to express my viewpoints for the audience that I'm oftentimes trying to satirize and critique. And then a number of people reached out to me, including representatives of MAPS and various other companies that are more on the clinical side. I would say the clinical side of maps reached out to me and that spun out into me having a Rick Doblin puppet and emceeing <laughs> psychedelic science and a number of other features. So I'm proud of that. Um, and honestly, at a certain point, I really just like doing Mycopreneur because there's no gatekeepers at Mycopreneur. Mm -hmm. I appreciate being able to pitch to different platforms and I'm working towards onboarding with more tier one media or like more mainstream media organizations. But there's something really poetic and beautiful about not having to kiss anyone's ass and just mm -hmm. saying like, I've developed this audience. The audience essentially knows what they're getting into and they like what I have to do. So I've really just doubled down on that. Those all come to mind. And then really pumped about a couple of the opportunities I've had in Europe over the last year and this year as well, which is another thing I'm trying to do is kind of bridge this global psychedelic community. Mm. You look at the medical corporate side of psychedelics, it's literally 100% focused on US, Canada, Europe, Israel, Australia, maybe one or two outliers. Guys, my friends, there are mm -hmm. psychedelic users all over the planet. And I just mm -hmm. got to go to the first mushroom festival in India. So that was really mm -hmm. cool. I got to give oh, a wow. keynote there and connect with them and spend four days in Kerala and the mountains. And as you would imagine, they're globally savvy people. They all, you know, India uses English to communicate primarily because there's 32 different languages, at least within the subcontinent. And mm -hmm. yet somehow this 1.5 billion person continent who has many very globally savvy, intellectual, psychedelically attuned people is completely left out of mm. this conversation. The same could be said about Brazil, about you know different parts of Asia, so on and so forth. So that's another one of the contributions. And I'm very proud to have made inroads into these different organizations in Mexico, in Brazil, in India, so on. And uh, I would like to see the psychedelic conversation become more global and not mm. just dominated by North American Anglo-centric interests, which is mm. by and large what it has been since it burst into the mainstream four or five years ago. Yeah. Tell us about the, the conference in India. I, I want to hear a lot more about that. That sounds so interesting. It was so <laughs> cool. There's a company called Nuvedo, N-U-V-E-D-O, and they're young, hip, startup oriented entrepreneurs, mycopreneurs. And I had interviewed someone from Mumbai on Mycopreneur, who is one of the most longstanding mushroom farmers in India. He's been farming in Mumbai since the early 90s or 80s. And after I did that, they heard the podcast and they reached out to me and said, we'd love to do one. And I just was really impressed with their knowledge, their business acumen, but also their awareness of how psychedelics and mushrooms can fit into 
an Indian specific context and mm. not this Western framework that's forced upon them. And I think this is a really important discussion. So I've also had, yeah, so that was great. I got to spend time out there and Nuvedo, I got to meet a number of very impressive bootstrapping micropreneurs doing world-class work. Like one guy built his own bioreactor and then made his own mushroom leather and, and discs like, like coasters, but thick out of wood, uh, sorry, out of oyster mushroom mycelium. This is a process that I've explained. Some of these companies with tens of millions of dollars are having trouble cracking this level of mm. consistency of mm. uh, mycomaterial. And this dude in the middle of India with no formal training <laughs> has done it. And I think that that's a perfect example of yeah. why we need to democratize a lot more of this knowledge around mm. psychedelics, but also around mushrooms in general, that, for example, Josephine Nakakande at Eco Agric Uganda is a very well-known figure in certain mushroom circles. She went from no knowledge about mushrooms at all to getting a grant from an NGO, starting to grow oyster mushrooms, scaling it out to the point where they've trained 500 women in Uganda how to grow oyster mushrooms and sell them and go from under $1 a day economic input or, or earnings to over $15 a day and having clients at you know major resorts and exporting in some cases. So again, these are non-psychedelic examples, but they transfer over in a lot of ways to psychedelics because you meet these brilliant people who somehow have been left out of the conversation because somehow, they yeah, exactly. <laughs> you happen to have an Indian passport, your view doesn't count in global psychedelics. It's like that doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. And I'd argue that a lot of those people are kind of fed up with it and are doing it themselves yeah. and building these incredible use cases and prototypes uh, with no funding or very minimal funding while these bros in LA and San Francisco <laughs> where I've lived before are pivoting into the space. Their crypto startup went bankrupt and now they're a psychedelic entrepreneur like that. To me, <laughs> like, again, maybe I'm a little bit jaded here having lived around these communities for many years, but I think we've, if another crypto bro has a multi-million dollar exit in psychedelics, I don't really care that much about, <laughs> you know, that like, I want to see the friends in Africa and in Brazil, et cetera, get an opportunity to have their perspectives and their work count for something. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. How do we make that sustainable on our end? It's because we are living in America. We are kind of focused here and that is where all of the money is going. How do we support that global interconnected community? Great question. One I'm actively grappling with, and I think there's been a few more platforms to emerge to do this. One called Myco Stories. And my friend Mark, who runs that, is the former VP of Loop, which made the mycelium coffins, if you've ever seen that. Mm. It's uh, mycelium coffins in the Netherlands that have kind of penetrated a lot of mainstream global media. And you can elect to get buried in a mycelium coffin that then uh, returns to the earth, essentially. So he has experience in the business world and fundraising, et cetera, and has now launched Myco Stories to focus on building up a lot of these global micropreneurial startups and spent the last year in places like uh, Japan, Indonesia, and Singapore. This year, he's in Latin America. And I really haven't seen too many other people besides Juliana Frucci with Fungi Foundation doing this, who are kind of building up that global ecosystem. One easy way that I would like to contribute to at some point, I would call instead of seed funding, myco or spore funding, right? <laughs> Just like for so many like the people I work with in Chiapas, Mexico, good friends of mine, like sometimes they can't 
even put together enough money for an airline ticket that's like under a hundred bucks or for, you know, to get to a conference or something. And they're brilliant people. And it's just like, we, there's plenty of wealth on the planet. There's plenty mm-hmm. of wealth and money and psychedelics. It's pretty inequitably distributed. And I think mm-hmm. that's a huge talking point right now. It's like about equity and like, what does equity mean? Well, there's all, depends who you ask. <laughs> to a financier, equity is the value of a company or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But to, to other people, it's like, how do you democratize and level the playing field a little bit? And I don't think it's about this whole like, you know, uh, give it to people who don't deserve it. It's not at all what it's about. It's about like, some of these people literally don't have the advantages and backgrounds that many of us are born with, but they're brilliant. How come we're not valuing their knowledge in a, in a global society? And I, that's what it hits at. It's like too many people in psychedelics, I think, view compartmentalized regions of psychedelics because the market is in New York or the market is in California. It's like, we live in a global society. We're using global software right now. You can buy Coca-Cola in the smallest village in Africa for better or worse. So like, why is the psychedelic space that's emerging so heavily focused on, you know, 1 billion of the 8 billion inhabitants of the planet? And I really think we're going to start to see that shaken up because it's going to hit the bottom lines of a lot of companies. Like I, I posted this on Twitter recently that Asia has the highest use of MDMA. And you know, people are saying, oh, per capita or this or that. It's like, yeah, but like, you know, there's no MDMA policy and maps and so on and so forth, by and large, in places like India and Asia, where these there's other companies, there's other forces. I don't know who's making the yeah. MDMA there, but another thing that happens is like once policy in the US and Europe starts to advance, then other countries pay attention. And case in point, United United Arab Emirates had their first psychedelic conference or a panel at one earlier this year that other friends of mine from the biotech pharma sector put on, well, they're paying attention to the research going on in the US. So what's gonna stop you know, one of these companies or, or organizations tied to a government in Asia or something, once it advances in the US to come out and then take the lunch of the company in the US? You know, mm-hmm. I think these are very nuanced, broad questions that are not getting a lot of conversation or debate right now, or even attention at all. Yeah. I hope that answered the question. I'm a big ranter. <laughs> no, it super answered the no, question. It was, was a, great. It's a wild uh, divergent from psychedelic comedy, but it all connects. It all makes <laughs> no, sense. Yeah. No, this is, I, I love this. I feel like, you know, like you said, a lot of the people that come on your podcast don't necessarily know what they're doing. And it's really refreshing and awesome to hear how confident you are in what you're doing. And you, you mentioned that you are kind of a person who's always open to change. What are some of the conversations that you can remember that have changed your viewpoint throughout this uh, this whole time that you've been doing Micropreneur, if you can remember any? Yeah, I want to say one that comes to mind. Certainly, I would say going to the Wonderland Conference in Miami and to Horizons, this whole conference circuit that I didn't know existed like three years ago. I had no idea. And then I got invited to Horizons with the press pass because of an article I wrote for one of the more medical, you know, investment focused publications. And that's when I started to really hear the viewpoints and perspectives of a lot of the suits, a lot of the investors, a lot of the VCs. And I realized how much you actually connect and relate with them in person. And that so many of these perspectives we've developed are siloed off online. And it's so easy online to develop your own perspectives and to judge people and you know so on. But like one example for this is 
somebody who runs Tabula Rasa Ventures, which is a robust VC firm in the space that's very much from the pharma background and interested in the medical aspect of psychedelics primarily, and that they they mentioned in a conversation with their principal investor, Merrick, uh, in Denver, he said that when the pandemic hit, that the number one issue that a lot of nonprofits had was funding. They ran out mm. of funding. So, you know, there is this sense of like, evil, corporate, no, <laughs> pharma, stay away. But also a lot of times these people can make investments if they choose to and if it's a good fit in a nonprofit that could really, really use the resources. So that's sort of one of the principles I've adopted is like, don't leave money on the table, like spend it better than they do. You know, if somebody mm. from a, from MAPS or, or Lycos or whatever wants to pay you to do something, I mean, within reason, I think there's certain like non-negotiables that I'm still discovering where that is. But there's the <laughs> sense of like all money is dirty and like psychedelic. We need to move away from money. But then a lot of these companies or initiatives end up uh, going kaput because they can't sustain their organization. So that's one angle is just like it's not that money is bad necessarily. It's like how you use the money. I, I'm a critic of dis extreme disproportionate wealth. I'm not a critic of somebody having millions of dollars, but like mm. to me, this rush to want to be a multi-billionaire and cash out and this mm. and that is very misguided. It's putting the cart way before the horse, personally speaking. There's so mm. many other, you know, things to pay attention to. So like like when cannabis dispensaries operate like Apple stores, time to start letting a lot of people out of jail, right? That's like a, a trope, yeah. I mean, yeah. right? You've got people who are being incarcerated on draconian drug sentences while other people are waltzing in and cashing out, you know, and taking stock options. Like, and I think that we need to expand this thinking globally because we have uncoordinated clunky drug policy globally. Like, the fact that I can buy one magic mushroom, the Amanita muscaria, completely legally, but psilocybin is completely illegal in most cases, this is very disjointed and it doesn't make sense in the 21st century. Mm. And a lot of people exploit these loopholes. So I can go buy as many Amanita gummies as I want and eat them. You know, I can do telehealth ketamine and do one Skype call (laughs) and then have 100 ketamine lozenges delivered to my doorstep. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know necessarily the best model, but I know that there's room for critique and (laughs) hopefully iteration upon the current models that are out there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, like what you said just now about uh, using the money better than they will. We we still exist under these systems. We still exist under the the structures that we are, and we can imagine new ones and we can work towards new ones. But if the only people with power and the only people utilizing their voice in a platform are the people who are going to do harm, it doesn't make sense to just allow that to happen unimpeded. 100%. I'm deeply fascinated about this idea of like this global community, especially within the context of comedy, because comedy is such a culturally specific medium. How do you think that that, especially like also journalism, there are, there is different cultural sensitivities and cultural approaches to these various mediums. Do you think that that does bridge gaps or that that can be difficult to do? A hundred percent. And I grew up hosting exchange students. I think it's prepared me for the global Mm. world we live in. And so many times going back to first grade, 
when a girl from Brazil came to live with the family, they don't speak very good English when they come. They probably had some classes, but a lot of times there's a communication barrier. Mm -hmm. So I realized that humor and verbal communication, the sort of dancing monkey, I call it, that translates across cultures. And then mm -hmm. having had the good fortune to travel later in life all over the world, I've noticed that being omnipresent across different cultures, that there's usually somebody in a room who's very funny and that you don't have to even speak their language to be able to connect with them, you know? And mm -hmm. this translates really well over to psychedelics and to drugs, right? Like there's a lot of inherently absurd things about smoking weed or eating mushrooms or doing MDMA, where you kind of reach this point of nonverbal communication a lot of mm -hmm. the times where like, maybe you can't stop laughing about something and then you try to describe it. And even if you're speaking to another English speaker, it doesn't make sense what you're trying to tell them. Like, completely, like I think a lot of people have had that experience. They're like, I've got this thought in my head, but I just can't really articulate it. And it's really funny for some reason. And it feels really important right now for some reason. But I think that extends very well over to cross-cultural communications. And again, like not just in India, but I got to go to Hungary this year to a festival called Ozora. I had never heard of it. I was invited to go give a keynote and, and MC a stage in this random 30,000 person festival in the countryside outside of Budapest. And there were a bunch of people who didn't speak English. And I found that that sort of dancing, laughing, having a good time, this communicates cross cultures and so do psychedelics. So I think that they fit really, really well together. And again, I'm doubling down on the absurdist satire mm. because I feel like our timeline, our moment in time has gotten so absurd right now that it's like really hard to explain what's happening. You know, like if you tried to, if you tried to explain to someone from like 1996, what's happening right now, mm. it'd be almost impossible. In a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and I think that uh, that's the case with psychedelics. What are your comedic influences who has influenced your voice and how you approach talking about these topics in this way y'all are so good y'all are dialed in right now <laughs> yes i think I, I really resonate with the inappropriate over the top subversive mm -hmm. satirists and comics and i'm reading a book right now the title is actually escaping me but essentially arguing that a lot of subversive movements in history end up becoming the mainstream, you know, like mm. when they come out at a certain time, they're too shocking, like Elvis or the Beatles, you know, or mm. Bob Dylan breaking away from folk music and doing rock and roll. It's an affront to the establishment. And then a couple generations later, they are the establishment. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of that happening. And the immediate ones that come to mind is South Park. I just mm. growing up with the Simpsons first, I love The Simpsons, and they set the tone for a lot of this critique in American popular culture. But then South Park took it totally over the top and was totally inappropriate, totally offensive, but it resonated with a lot mm. of people. And it made a lot of good points. And there's a lot of stupid South Park episodes, <laughs> but there's also a lot of really intelligent, really well-crafted mm. ones. So Trey Parker and Matt Stone come to mind. And by the same ethos, Danny McBride and Jody Hill. They're mm. currently my favorite content creators. They do righteous gemstones, making fun of the hypocrisy of these televangelists, and you know, honestly, one of the best comedies on TV, maybe the best. <laughs> They're so dialed in, and I have so much respect for them. Their origin story was all coming from South Carolina, from the sticks with no connections, and then all working on everything together through college. So like they're sane people mm -hmm. that are doing set design, writing the scripts, directing, everything around a production is the same core group. 
that they mm. were creating student films with. And I think that's so beautiful because we live in an age of overproduced blockbusters, Jerry Bruckheimer and Marvel. But like, there's something really beautiful about these people who took it from zero to a hundred and have that perspective. Mm. And so, yeah, those guys are huge inspirations to me. I love Sasha Baron Cohen, mm. Borat, I think brilliant, <laughs> just brilliant. Ali G before yeah. Borat, if you're familiar, mm-hmm. absolutely. Who is America? And again, not always politically correct, mm-hmm. but I think, if they're punching up, it's largely okay or necessary at least to do that. So they come to mind a whole bunch of other ones. I love Mike judge. I don't think he's ever missed Beavis and butthead king of the hill, idiocracy, Silicon Valley, plenty of other, uh, you know, works that they've done. Idiocracy, Anthony, really just a documentary at this point. Yeah. He's another one that made a life for himself too. He was working as like a, I can't remember some kind of desk job and just making animations on the side. And there, someone just wound up really loving his like crude animation style. And one day they were like, Hey, can you uh, go ahead and make a whole season of Beavis and Butthead? And he was like, this five minute video took me 10 days. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when you start to build a team, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, This kind of gets me on a a ranty subject a little bit, but one of the things I've noticed with psychedelic media in specific that I've tried to critique and satirize and call out is people who buy their way into the space. There's Mm. a lot of trying to buy your way into stuff. And to me, that's very non-psychedelic. Psychedelic (laughs) is that you're resourceful, you're creative, you bootstrap. What's not psychedelic is plowing hundreds of thousands of dollars into trying to get the most clicks. And I think Mm. that's where this whole like socio-political landscape we live in maps itself onto the mainstreaming of psychedelics is that people are coming from other corporate backgrounds or whatever, thinking they could do the same thing they did when they were at their advertising agency or the same thing they did when they were part of fucking up the cannabis industry and map that onto psychedelics. And I really question that because again, like there's so many valid, deserving people who are doing it without you know the big the flashing lights and song and dance and 500,000 investment that they took on and you know boosting their posts so uh that's just something that i and maybe that's because i'm a hater but like (laughs) no no, i think it's i I think it's real i think it's good i think that's a good (laughs) opinion to have Yeah. yeah no i think that's great um okay this is, I finally remembered the question. There you go. You got um, it. <laughs> can you take us through some of your favorite conversations that you've had on the podcast? Some of the guests that you've had on that you think a lot more people need to know about, like who are some people that you want to kind of shine a light on? Yeah. At the expense of upsetting many people who <laughs> drop their names right now. Yeah. Just and everyone know. else, just for the record, anyone else who's listening to this, that was on the micropreneur podcast, if you're not mentioned, that's pretty much Dennis giving you the middle finger. So <laughs> but you can come on this podcast and then state your case. So I yeah, yeah. Come on, come on here and we'll let you just rant about Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Yeah. So if you come to mind, uh, Josephine Nakakande, I think, is everything Mm. that I want people to to know about. And that's the woman in Uganda Mm. who went from nothing to building this really robust and influential operation. And it incorporates so much more than just mushrooms. And it's not even psychedelic affiliated at all. It's about how mushrooms can help solve problems and function in an actual community that needs them, an abjectly impoverished community. So Josephine Nakakande from Eco Agric Uganda, 
And she's very well known. If you were to just look through Micropreneur episodes, you'd find it going back. I got to have her back on. That hmm. comes to mind. I think that Travis Tyler Fluke in Denver, we just did an episode and he's a really interesting model for how psychedelics could be rolled out right now. And that he was very instrumental in decriminalization in Denver. And they do grow, gather, gift events right now mm. with the Denver Mushroom Cooperative, but also very responsibly in the sense that they know you can't just give out mushrooms to a bunch of people and think that's going to be the, the best path forward. It's also about creating this community atmosphere, a mutual aid focused container, right? Where you're thinking mm. about, oh yeah, let's also run an educational seminar around these about harm reduction. Let's also teach people how to grow them, right? Let's also have aftercare, trip sitters available. So Travis Tyler Fluke and Denver Mushroom Cooperative, James Davis from Bay Staters. Mm. That dude is sharp. He has a background as a political lobbyist, was instrumental in rolling out the first universal basic income in the world in Taiwan. Oh, all shit. Places. Yeah. Super interesting dude and just laser sharp. And he's the type on the commercials where they go, the, the pharma industry doesn't want you to know about this person. <laughs> he's like that type where he's like, I think a lot of the big business conglomerates and corporate psychedelics, they've somehow discounted the fact that there's a lot of really brilliant, sharp mm -hmm. people who know their game who are part of the underground and who are actively working against yeah. gatekeeping yeah. and trying to dismantle them. And James Davis is one of those to the point where he shared this on the podcast, a super PAC trying to establish inroads into Massachusetts, which has been uh, involved in other policy design around psychedelics in Colorado and probably Oregon as well, gave him $35,000 kind of as a, hey, we're friends, right? And then when he didn't do what they wanted to do, they got really upset about it. He's like, oh, I didn't know this was conditional, you know, like you, you <laughs> of course, yeah. and, uh, and we're not bending on our principles. So, but yeah. the issue, I think, which a lot of this corporatization or biotech, whatever you want to call it, psychedelic sector is running up against is this idea that the hubris, they think they're the smartest in the room. They think, you know, just because they have money means that they have the best strategy. That's not always true. Mm -hmm. What happens when you have 4,000 passionate volunteers, many of, whom, many of whom are highly educated, who are actively working to dismantle the barriers that the corporate mm -hmm. profiteers are putting in place? Like, I don't think anybody's prepared for that. So then they try to buy you off. And I've <laughs> often said, I'm for sale, but it's not 35,000. You got a 10X or 20X that number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. That's actually a really funny connection because early on in my journey, I tried to start like a decriminalized Tennessee uh, like Instagram page or whatever. And I actually had a conversation with James uh, like really early on and he was such a cool dude. And one of the things that I always like really respected was when I reached out and was like, hey, I'd really like to like learn more about this. He was like, uh, hey, man, I'll have a call or whatever, but I've talked to a lot of people, uh, wasted a lot of time with people mm -hmm. who have just like not pulled through. And to be honest, I just like you can't do it again. And I was like, that's totally fair and sick. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and I wound up running that page for a while, but it, it it's difficult in Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> also but. to validate what he's saying is it's good to build the long-term relationships because there are so many people who jump out and their guns blazing and then they just are a huge waste of time and like oh that, totally yeah yeah so i know he that. he was like uh i mean he talked to me on the phone for like an hour and some of the things that he was talking about how they had accomplished was so impressive the bay staters are like really impressive group and 
my partner is from um, Cape Cod. And so um, I like always kind of hear like the news stories about all the different cities in Massachusetts decriminalizing and it's always the Bay Staters behind it. <laughs> and so they're like, they're, they're making some real moves. That was really cool that you got to talk to them and uh, big, big respect to, to James Davis for sure. Totally. I've had him on twice and I look forward to again. And there, there's a whole bunch more, but I, one of the approaches I started adopting earlier in the podcast is one for us, one for them, I call it. And mm. having gone to film school, a lot of my friends mm -hmm. who are working in the entertainment industry have had to do this. We're like, you don't always want to work on this big motion picture or show or whatever, but you have to pay the bills. So you yeah. do that. You know, you do an ad campaign for Adidas or whatever, and then you can make art and you can make the thing you want to make after that. And I try to do that, I guess, with the podcast is like one with these suits who have never touched a psychedelic and are going to come on because their PR agent directed them my way because I have <laughs> traction and they want to gain influence or whatever. And then they do their talking points. And like some of these podcasts, they don't even want to answer questions. They're there to deliver their bot, you know, their talking mm -hmm. points. They're there to uh, use canned talking points. And then the other one after that, it's like, Oh, now I'm on the radar. I'm shared and I'm in this newsletter and this and that. And I have more listeners. Then we can put on Josephine or someone in, mm -hmm. you know, Nuvedo in India. And that's the approach I very much try to maintain. Hmm. When doing that, how do you maintain your like ethos? You were saying you have non-negotiables that you're still navigating right now. How do you find those non-negotiables and where do you come across those when having these guests on like one for them, one for me? Yeah, I think a big one there is community feedback. It's where mm. you build your community and your audience. And a lot of times your peers and your friends, which I think translates over to psychedelic experiences as well, they know you pretty well. And like, they can check you. I think those are some of the best friends you have mm -hmm. where like you put something out or you do something and they're like, what are you doing? And you know, sometimes I think you need to build those networks up where you are serving your audience and, and so on. And then you uh, occasionally stray from that because you try something or you do something. And as far as like the non-negotiables, there's not many non-negotiables that I have, but I, I am very skeptical and dubious of this whole narrative around using psychedelics to extend the operability of soldiers of like, you know, I had yeah. an instance where I was in the audience at a major conference and I heard some general on four star general on stage talking about how he was concerned about MDMA being used in active duty military, because what happens then if one of the soldiers hesitates pulling the trigger because he's developed empathy for the enemy. And I think <laughs> this is like really dangerous when the conversation, I swear, I swear to you. And this is all like on film and camera and is a talking point. But then you'll have people defending that and saying like, well, these people are defending our freedom. And then it gets into a really difficult, really nuanced conversation. And that's right now, I wouldn't say it's a non-negotiable, but this idea of simping for the military industrial <laughs> complex and like turning psychedelics into this, you know, access only for special forces, veterans or so on and so forth. I want, of course, I want them to have access, but when that's the bottleneck and that's where the funding is going and that's where the, the hype is going and the narrative is going. Like, I think we need to reel it back a little bit, which a lot of people have been critical of this and be like, why should they be the first people to receive this mm -hmm. and not, you know, so many other populations who have been devastated, including by military and first responder actions and so on and so forth. And that might be a controversial take, but right now that's kind of where I'm at. For this podcast, absolutely not a controversial take. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. This is this has been awesome. Does anybody else have any other questions or before I 
kind of just is there anything that you stuff. feel like you have you we've covered so much ground i think you are possibly the highest energy guest we've had thus far which is <laughs> beautiful is there anything that you feel like you haven't gotten to touch on that you really wanted to to get out in the world you have your own platform but anything here that you really want to touch on before we get out of here mm. Yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out some of the people that have really worked with me and been building with me and supported me. And one of those is a company called MicroBoost, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. And they're a good example of people who are well-funded, who also are not primarily driven by the bottom line. They're extremely active in the community. They've been sponsoring underground events. I've seen them many times pick up the slack for somebody when somebody needs a helping hand. And I'd hope that more companies can realize that you can be profitable, you can be capitalist, you can make money without being this cutthroat, only driven by the bottom line, only focused on shareholder returns. I'd like to see that model mm. extrapolated upon and expanded, that people who have mm. the resources and the means can help to build and, and over the long term help to curate the community that we want to live in. So I got to shout out MicroBoost and... Also, just in general, I, I really think the most important healthy thing in a lot of ways people can do for 2024 and beyond is to develop a sense of humor. You don't have to be born with it. You can develop it. That's something that I've learned. <laughs> I think there's this misconception that like some people are funny and other people are not funny. I went to an improv class only once, maybe seven <laughs> years ago or so. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'd like to do it again sometime. But what, what really struck me was probably out of the 12 people there because it was a free class. I was walking by in my neighborhood and there's an improv, oh, it's a free class. I better do this. Seven of the 12 people were referred by a therapist, okay? And I think that says a lot who are like, yeah, my therapist told me this might be a good thing for me. Just this sense of play, humor, fun, not mm. judging everyone mm. all the time. You know, it's so easy. We're incentivized to judge people and that's valid, but like keep it in check, you know, and, and judge yourself first mm. maybe. So that's another one. It's like develop the sense of humor. And uh, the more seriously you take things, like that only needs to be part of your personality. If you're going to allow the serious, heavy, burden-strapped nature of reality to drive you into the ground, that's a quick one-way trip, my friend. So develop a sense mm, of humor, mm. you know, share it with your friends, and remember why a lot of us got into psychedelics in the first place. It sure as hell wasn't to cash out and to make a whole bunch of money. That's not, nobody I know <laughs> yeah. from, you know, prior to the hype cycle got into psychedelics and became a psychonaut or interested in them uh, for financial returns. So remember mm. to not put the cart before the horse, but that you can still make some money. And hopefully we find that sweet spot together. Love that. That is great. Yeah. Where can, uh, where can people find you? And more importantly, where can people support you? Totally. So I should touch on this briefly. There's going to be some more coming out about it. But I was recently deplatformed on Instagram, which was kind of my main account. I had 25,000 mm. followers. And a lot of them were like publications, like, you know, High Times and writers and journalists. So that was very demoralizing wow. because... There yeah. was no warning. There was no clear sense of violation. It was just, oh, you're done. No content strikes, literally mm. nothing to being permanently disabled. So I've written about that a little bit about what the censorship is like around psychedelics and social media, which I'm sure you're familiar with or at some point will become yeah. familiar with. And uh, <laughs> so I think that's a thing to pay attention to in 2024 and how to rebuke that or how to work as a content creator, satirist psychedelic business whatever 
in the context of this increasingly censorship-oriented global media apparatus and social media apparatus that uh, were, were largely restricted to communicating on, you know, how to build beyond that. So that's something. Yeah. Micropreneur Official is the new Instagram handle. If you Google Micropreneur, that's why I say M-Y-C-O-P-R-E-N-E-U-R. It'll be, I'm sure, attached to this, the show notes or whatever. And anything mm -hmm. attached to that is related to me. So micropreneur at gmail.com. I'm very happy to answer emails and to entertain people, especially if you have an ongoing project. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my barrier to entry is like, I'm happy to help people get started or whatever, but I'm like very available, even if it's non-paying a lot of the times for people who have an established or, or like a, a real project that they've already launched that has some valid question about like how to essentially cultivate or grow or expand this or whatever. So happy to do that. Micopreneur mm -hmm. at gmail.com. Come on podcasts, you know, happy to do that. Mm -hmm. Happy to collaborate to the best of my ability. And yeah, that's it. And then TikTok. I've been focusing more energy on X and TikTok. Part of my strategy last year before I got deplatformed was to penetrate the global media ecosystem, essentially, which I think I've done quite well. So I've been doing a lot more on X, a lot more on yeah. TikTok. And more in the mainstream too. You know, this year I was fortunate enough to be covered multiple times with the work I'm doing in Rolling Stone and in Forbes and a few other platforms like that. So I'm trying to really saturate the oh, whole yeah. ecosystem so that if you get kicked off of whatever platform, it doesn't really matter if you have your tentacles extended in a hundred others. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. And hopefully Tripsitter soon as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. You bet. Thank you so much for for coming on, guys. This was this great. was a this really was awesome. great talk. This we ah, uh, I I really appreciate this a lot. It is a pleasure, completely my pleasure. So thank you for the invite. And that's another episode of the Tripsitter Podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Tripsitter is supported by our fans. If you dig the work we do and want to help support us to keep doing it, head over to tripsitter.substack.com and become a premium subscriber to help support us. Want to show your support but can't do the monetary commitment? Review, like, and share this podcast. It really does help boost our listenership. This episode was co-hosted by Jay Gordon Curtis, Justin Cook, and Rowan Zioli. As always, we want to end with a reminder. There's no such thing as a bad drug. They're just chemicals, natural or unnatural, that exist within our world. It's our relationship with them and how we interact with them that makes the difference. Have a safe trip.